This is the Macmillan Library Podcast, a community conversation maker, bringing you curated conversations with Macmillan librarians, community members, authors, musicians, artists, and more. Welcome back. Today we have Bob Bartek on to discuss his deployments with disaster medical assistance teams to Texas in response to Hurricane Harvey and Puerto Rico in response to Hurricane Maria. He is presenting at the Macmillan Library Thursday, April 12th at 7 p.m. in the all-purpose room. I really learned a lot from this conversation and can put some context around photos I've seen from disaster areas now. Previously, I didn't know where the disaster relief teams came from, and it turns out the answer is from our own community. Bob has some amazing experiences to share. I hope you enjoy the podcast and come Thursday night to hear more and see some photos from his time deployed. And now, Bob Bartek. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I have Bob Bartek here with me, and could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do here in Rapids? Sure, Colin. Well, first, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, this is uh, new for me. Uh, I did one podcast before, so I, but that was on Skype through my home. So this is this mm. is pretty cool. A nice studio down here. Yeah. Now you're in the official Macmillan Podcast Studio. Yeah. So this is this is really neat. Um, so I'm Bob Bartek. I uh, uh, been here in the Rapids area for about 25 years now. I uh, I work for the city city of Wisconsin Rapids Fire Department. I'm a, a captain and a paramedic on the department there. Um, the job for that department is what brought me here. Um, I grew up in northern Wisconsin, up in, in Owen Withy, Owen specifically. But uh, I'm not really not positive where that is. Okay, so so Owen Withy, if you were to draw like Highway 29 between Wausau and Eau Claire, halfway between those two. Okay. Um, so about 45 minutes north northwest of Marshfield. And like we just say, just a little bit south of heaven. Just, it's <laughs> it's uh, really beautiful. Really beautiful place, uh, great place to grow up. Little town of nine hundred. My dad was a, a teacher there, and uh, and uh, so it was really. I always talk about growing up was like being in a growing up in a Norman Rockwell painting. There, it was before the internet, and everybody knew everybody else's kids. Oh and yeah, we were outside all the time, and and uh, yeah, really neat place to grow up. And uh, that's where uh, uh, my my uh, love of uh, the fire service came. So my dad was a teacher. But he was also a volunteer firefighter. He actually still is, seventy, I believe, seventy three years old now. Wow! And he's still volunteering on the fire department. I keep, I'm not happy with that. I keep telling him, <laughs> "All right, Dad, I'm, I can retire in my fifties from uh, from a career in the fire service. I think you can hang it up volunteering in your seventies. Has he had to go out on any calls recently? Well, he he, uh, at least he's taking a reduced role in it. So he okay. hasn't gone on calls now for a couple of years. He's still probably at 70 or 71 he still was going out on some calls wow. but uh i had kind of leaned on the fire chief up there to put my dad in a role where you just just, just let get him hurt you know yeah but he's a he's a servant you know both my parents are real servants and so i i i it's tough to keep him away from that kind of stuff in the community he loves to serve he always sees himself this this guy well who's gonna do it if i don't well the community will find a way, Dad, and they and they are. But I admire him so so much. Obviously, that's awesome. Yeah, it yeah. seems that you've picked up on some of that. 
Yeah. How did you get involved with what's the organization that so, uh, does I'm with, disaster relief? Yeah. So um, the I'm with the National Disaster Medical System. Um, they have several teams for disaster response. The one that I serve on is what what's called the DMAT team. So disaster medical assistance team. Um, there's about 50 some odd teams throughout the country that are active. And uh, um, the, the National Disaster Medical System, or NDMS, sits under federal health and human services. Um, it used to sit under FEMA after Hurricane Katrina. They moved that over. FEMA said, we're really not good at medical. Let's move that over to the health and human services. And uh, so we're a disaster response entity under HHS. And um, any disaster that this, uh, uh, this country faces, or we can be blown out to other countries, say like Haiti or, or others, um, they will uh, look at the needs of the disaster and how they can best meet the needs and then deploy teams um, to those. Uh, NDMS has four different teams underneath its umbrella. DMAT's just one of them. Um, they also have uh, insert teams, which are surgical teams, which will be married up with the DMAT team. Um, they have uh, veterinary teams uh, that will go out and take care of actually pets, people's pets. It's a huge deal in disasters. And then they also have disaster mortuary teams, which also is another unfortunate part of the disasters that they have to have. Yeah, I heard, what was it? It was during Harvey, I think, that people were getting, like a helicopter was coming, they are all stranded, and the whole family would be taken away and they'd have to leave their dog on the roof. Sounds yes. so sad. Yes, that is that's a a huge problem in disasters. And actually, where I ended up, I responded to Harvey. Um, I was with the DMAT team uh, that got a, a assigned to the George Brown Convention Center in downtown Houston. They actually had one whole area of that uh, that disaster shelter set up for families with pets, so they wouldn't have to leave their pets out. And then they had area of veterinarians and they had a, a there was a, a, a NDMS vet team uh, I believe deployed to Texas but they weren't in Houston and so they had volunteer uh, veterinarians coming in to help care for them and things like that so yeah it's always an issue the pets you know what do you do with them yeah is the team is your team like a, a static thing like do you have a, a team that you go places with or do they just pick you and be like, you're going here and you'll get your team when you get there. Yes. Uh, so it's very interesting. So Wisconsin, we have our own team. So I'm a part of Wisconsin One Disaster okay. Medical System team. And they number them because like states like California and states like Florida, they've got, you know, they'll have like five or six DMAT teams in that one state. Uh, Wisconsin, we only have one. Um, I've been with the team for about five or six years. I'm part of the national organization. I can deploy with any team under NDMS, uh, but the main purpose is really to deploy with Wisconsin's team um, as, a, as a whole, as a team in, in its entirety. Um, but once you're into the system, uh, my job, hired role in it is a health technician paramedic. And if, uh, if Minnesota's team is short of paramedic, they can grab me off a roster and and I'll deploy with them. And that's actually what I did to Harvey. I was actually with Minnesota's DMAT team when I went okay. there. And uh, when I went to Puerto Rico in response to Maria, I was part of Florida's team, uh, Florida One. But Florida One and Wisconsin One are what they call sister teams. They've, they've worked on mentoring our team into the make it a, a high-quality team that it is today. So how does 
how does this work with you're having so like if somebody was on this team like you have a normal job a normal life they just call you and you get taken out of that for how long and is this a paid thing and are yeah. people's jobs okay with them just giving like nope yeah. i'm gone for the next <laughs> whatever now yeah it's it's that's a excellent question um what occurs is is so the the dmat teams any any of these teams under ndms we're considered civilian responders that can become intermittent federal employees once we're deployed. We actually are identical. We actually fall under the same laws as the uh, National Guard and the uh, Army Reserve or the reserve units. And so our employers uh, have to allow us to, to be on a team, and they have to allow us to deploy as a team, but they don't have to pay us once we've deployed. As soon as I'm deployed, I become a federal employee, and they, they pay me. Now, um, it's quite the pay cut when you go to work as a paramedic for the federal government in disaster. But uh, I didn't sign up to to make money. I signed up to yeah. serve others, and uh, and so it was. Uh, so that's how that works. And so we'll. Um, I've been on the team now for close to six years, and I've only had to do two disaster deployments. And so it's not like we leave frequently. And when we do leave, um, they're trying to keep it where it's a maximum of uh, of fourteen days. Um, both of my deployments were a little bit longer than fourteen. Um, there was some team members in Puerto Rico that did 30 days, but uh, the fall of 2017 was uh, extraordinarily difficult for NDMS because they went from storm to storm to storm. You know, they had us uh, several teams deployed to Texas for Harvey. Then Irma came, made land, was making landfall into Florida, and they had to move assets to Florida. And then uh, as as uh, there just not even a chance to recover from Irma Maria. Uh, wipes through the uh, Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico and uh, does affect, uh, you know, Florida a couple of days later, but not in the same effect as Irma. And so they just were out of resources. And so they had to ask people to be out, uh, you know, for a little bit longer. So if I, if and when I do get deployed, it's, it's typically only for really intended to be for two weeks. Um, the city here, the city of Wisconsin Rapids has been incredibly supportive of my uh, involvement in the team. And, um, and basically I notify them as soon as I've put on alert that I'm on alert and, uh, and there's a possibility I might deploy. And then, um, once I have orders in my hand that I'm being sent somewhere, then I, uh, I, uh, you know, notify them that I'm being deployed. Um, and then I'm off the, off the schedule at the fire department and I'm going somewhere with, uh, with the federal government. Um, I think that the, the city and the fire department in general, um, realizes that uh, that these disasters, and I'm not the only one from in our department that is, is deployed. We also have uh, another captain, Todd Eckes. He's part of a state incident management team. He went to he went to Texas also. So we had actually two assets down there. Two of the captains were in Texas for that that particular hurricane. Um, but I think that it makes our community stronger. It makes it more resilient when we've had people that have been to to these disasters and can help this community prepare for that um, in our own. Uh, we're never going to hit by a hurricane, but we certainly can understand what tornadoes are like and windstorms yeah. are like and floods are like. And uh, and so having those experiences in the positions that uh, Captain Eckes and I are both in, are, are it's it's a lot of learning goes on there. Yeah, it's really fantastic to have a supportive place of employment. It is. That. It is. They've been, they've been very good. Um, and uh, I, I thank them for that often. What are the logistics like when you get the call like how do you 
get there? Like, especially how did you get to Puerto Rico? And then where mm -hmm. do you stay that whole time? Yeah, like, what yeah. what's your situation like that whole Logistics, time? Logistics, I love that. <laughs> Logistics, this is this is the quote I have. Amateur talk, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. Logistics are everything. Logistics in these, uh, in these hurricane responses are just not moving the people there, but the equipment that you need and everything. Yeah. So the two responses that I made last fall had two very different logistical avenues to get there. First, uh, um, roster has to be verified who's going to go, um, where you're going to be deployed to first. Um, when I was sent to Texas, they flew us into commercial flights. So the federal government books a flight for me. I get a ticket confirmation in an email of when I'm going. And um, when I'm on call, I have to keep two bags packed. We're allowed two bags. We've got one bag, all the deployment bag that we've got all of our clothing and things that we'll need for up to a two-week deployment. And then we've got a backpack that'll have a change of clothes in it, a couple of MREs, and, which are meals ready to eat, um, and a couple other, you know, niceties, a phone charger, all the little things that you need to stay in touch with your family. So you have to have those packed. So once you get the notification that you're on alert, you better go through your bags, make sure that everything's packed. Uh, my daughter helped me. Uh, I'm going to, I always blame Jesse for one little problem I had in Texas. So I'm going to bring my daughter into this conversation. So Jesse, my daughter, Jesse and I are going over my pack list the night before I had been notified I was going to, to Harvey. And, uh, I'm holding my, my sleeping pad in my hand and I'm like, you know, I've got so much stuff already in this bag. I said, you know, usually they supply cots for us and I'm pretty hardy. You know, I think I'll leave that behind. That was a key mistake. I should have taken that sleeping pad with me. <laughs> and so I always kind of rib my daughter about it that, that I blame her for leaving that behind. <laughs> so then the following, I had gotten the notification the following morning. I had a flight out of central Wisconsin. And I met there then I actually another paramedic who's actually from Marshfield Fire Department, Steve Bacos. I met him at the airport and uh, we traveled to Dallas. We met two other members of Wisconsin's team, uh, a nurse from Fond du Lac, Brenda Kissinger, and another paramedic from uh, Wauwatosa um, uh, Fire Department, uh, Jim Case, and then the remainder of the uh, Minnesota One DMAT team. And these people we hadn't even met before, but they're all assigned roles. We've got mental health, we've got doctors, we've got paramedics, we've got uh, uh, nurses, a lot of support, logis specific logistics people. So they fly you into uh, Dallas and you get an email with orders of what uh, hotel to report to. And we report it in at the hotel. And then we are in staging at the hotel as a team. And so we sat in Dallas in staging with, I believe there was eight full DMAT teams. So eight full 36-person DMAT teams wow. sitting in Dallas waiting. Uh, Dallas is also home to an equipment cache, uh, one, of the, one of the national equipment cache sites for our DMAT teams. So they were busy loading uh, an equipment cache up for us. Um, about two and a half days later, um, kind of a lot of hurrying up and waiting. You're in the hotel, but you're not really comfortable. You're waiting for that knock on the door in the middle of the night or the phone call that you're moving. Um, so we got the order that we're moving to Dallas, um, or excuse me, to Houston. They had watched that storm closely. We felt like we were going to go to Corpus Christi um, or somewhere further south. But when that rain started dumping on Houston and the flooding began, it was very obvious that they were going to have a major issue. So you're actually deployed before before everything gets crazy. Yeah, that's they, they try to do that. So we're there right as that storm is coming into the coast. We were actually in Dallas watching the news feeds as that thing's hitting the coast. And then all these predictions and storm tracks uh, were really dialed into it, looking to see where that need is. So we're just a few hours away from where – 
we we feel that the the people that are going to need our services are. That's great. Uh, so th- so then once we have the the order of where we're going to go, um, th- we pack quickly into coach buses. They grabbed four full DMAT teams. Uh, we need force protection, so they had forty five ATF agents. Um, they had the National Guard, plus we had an equipment caches to support four DMAT teams. So we had about a hundred vehicle convoy um, from Dallas to Houston. Now, if you do Google Maps, and we're headed to the XL Energy Center where the Houston Texans play, that's they felt like that. That's a high point in downtown Houston. They felt like uh, evacuees are starting to go there. They felt like that's where the biggest need is going to be, and so that's where they're going to send us. Um, we left at like four in the afternoon. No, I think we packed up maybe at two or three. I can't remember, but the timeline was we finally reached the uh, uh, the NRG Center at uh, 13 and a half hours later. And if you were to do Google's map, it's only be about a three-hour drive. Wow, yeah. What occurred was is they couldn't find any dry roads. So if you saw on the news these images of Houston – overpasses underwater those mm-hmm. are the roads that we need to travel into houston on and so they had uh, texas state patrol and the national guard units and the atf units going out scouting out dry roads and so all those images you saw of these huge highway signs half underwater we'd be going over an overpass the wrong direction following in this convoy uh into the nrg center <laughs> uh it was it was really and we did the buses at, at points were you know driving through shallow water um, it was just absolutely remarkable. Uh, I don't know who logistically put that together. I'm just a passenger in one of the buses. Um, uh, it was amazing, absolutely amazing voyage there. And then the NRG Center had really opened their do- doors to the emergency management group and and uh, were ready to receive us. And they actually pulled the buses inside. It was pouring the whole trip. I mean, absolutely pouring. Oh boy! And trying was, to find roads while it's pouring too. It, oh yeah, you know? and and driving through those communities, those neighborhoods, and seeing them flooded, it was like the anxiety, the the reasons that were there are are just blaringly obvious. And everyone in that bus is just like, "Let's, we've got work to do. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. Just put us somewhere where we can we can start helping people." And um, well, we got to the energy energy center about four a.m. And this is where the sleeping pad part comes into it. Uh, they said, all right, camp out. And basically where they have the big convention buses and stuff park, we just camped out on the concrete floor. Oh, yeah. yeah so, so I could have used my sleeping pad, Jesse. You really let me know in there. Uh, I think I'd be really bad at all this packing stuff because <laughs> I am a, notoriously packing way, way too much. Like I think about every – I go backpacking – Think about every situation I might get in and what yeah, I might need. The what if. And then my backpack is like, I don't know how heavy, like 75 pounds. It's like ridiculous. <laughs> I, I I like to backpack too, and my wife does too, and I fall under that same thing, especially being a, a firefighter and a pure medic. You're always like, well, what if? Yeah. What if what I have if a major this? amputation I, out there? Yeah, then I need my to wife have is this. like, you don't need this. Well, what if about this situation? <laughs> yeah. You've got to have it. <laughs> Well, you're really limited that the big bag that we're allowed, it can't be over, 
well, you got to pay extra on the flight. So I tried to keep it under 50 pounds. We had some people that showed up that threw everything in. My buddy, Jim Case, I'm going to throw him under the bus. His, his bag was, he had one bag that was close to 100 pounds. <laughs> and he packed. That's me. He was, he was smart though. He brought like rubber. He had like, like five water, uh, waiters. Oh, he had a set of yes. waiters packed even. No, I didn't. I thought, well, if I've got to go wading into the floodwaters, we'll figure that out when we got to figure it out. But, um, yeah, so they, we, we set up at Energy Center just to start with at 4 a.m. They just said, don't unpack. Just lay down for a couple hours, get some rest. And so it was, you know, you just lay it on on the floor. Um, we're basically at that point no different than the evacuees. We don't have, um, you don't know where the next meal's coming from. Well, you got a couple in your backpack. That's why you pack them. Um, you don't know, you know, where you're going to end up that night. You don't know exactly who you're going to see and when they're um, – but I still managed to sleep. I mean, there were some people that said they couldn't. Um, I put in some earplugs and, and uh, uh, someone had loaned me a sleep mask, put that on, and I, I kind of passed out for a couple hours. Um, and then about 8 a.m., they said, there's evacuees coming to the NRG Center. Um, but the, the downtown, the George Brown Convention Center, which had originally been set up for 2,500 evacuees, uh, at that point was uh, swelling to 8,000. And uh, they wanted two full DMAT teams down there. And I was just real lucky that I was on Minnesota's team. And Minnesota was, was selected. And uh, so was uh, North Carolina one. And so they loaded up those two teams, uh, a pile of heavily armed ETF agents and uh, equipment caches. And then we made the drive about 8 a.m. Um, the rain was still falling, but just 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 ending that day, that the day that we were pulling into the NRG Center. The rain was really uh, waning off, but the flooding they knew wasn't far from over because uh, I, I understand how Houston all lays, but apparently it's very low, um, and they were worried about the streams now flooding from the rains in northern Texas, yeah. and it's all going to flow through there. So we uh, that bus drive to to the George Brown Convention Center opened our eyes as we're driving through these city streets. You could see the the images that you see on the news of these families carrying garbage bags full of their belongings, just looking for the high ground uh, to find it and words spreading through them that, uh, um, that the George Brown Convention Center is, is, is high and it's receiving people. Um, when we arrived there, uh, the ATF really had um, their hands full. It is just thousands of people trying to get into this shelter Um and, you know, Houston's the fourth largest city in this in this uh, country. And so you think about all the elements that are in a large city, especially inner city like that. Um, large homeless population, uh, gang population, a lot of criminal activity. The Houston Police Department, the ETF, all the security agents really had their hands full trying to keep the good from the bad sorted. The people that needed the help and the predators that were also flowing in at the same time. So they did a really good job of keeping us us safe and kind of uh, hardened. So we were brought to a back dock. We were shown to an upstairs uh, conference room. It had carpet. I was so happy it had carpet, so I'd have a layer of carpet. <laughs> and uh, uh, they said, just dump your gear here and come downstairs, and we're going to start setting up. Um, and so we went downstairs to the – when I say downstairs, this, this George Brown Convention Center is massive. It's, it's four huge separate rooms. I can't even imagine the dimensions. This is probably each one of those rooms would house probably six football fields. 
and wow. it's just it's just massive and uh, and they had people flowing in prior to our arrival Baylor University had set up it set up sent down some of their docs and their nurses to try to set up a medical aid station and they were just being overrun um, and when we rolled in they were just so thankful that they had a, a medical team ready to go to work so we set up a hardened area. We had to move some evacuees out and actually had this area where we could set up our medical facility. Uh, they were trying to uh, bribe people with blankets. If you take this blanket, we'll give you this blanket if you'll be willing to move your cot and your family okay. over to the other yeah. side of this room. It was is is really tough to watch. I mean, these people are just literally wet from the flood water now. Please pick up your stuff and move. Um, I don't remember. Was, was there a full evacuation notice given in Houston or were people caught unaware or they were they were given a lot of notice in advance okay and uh, the rain falls 40 inches in something like 72 hours uh, I think it went up to 50 or 60 inches and I don't quote me on that I don't remember the exact totals but it was just a massive amount of water in that short period of time and so they were given a lot of notices and there was a lot of the emergency management group in Texas was excellent in Houston, and, and public health was excellent also. They were pushing these messages that here is where you can go. Here's where the convention centers are. Here's where you can get help. Um, but yet in any disaster like that, there's people that don't get the message or people that don't listen to it. Yeah. Um, and so they're caught off guard, and then they, you know, due to a variety of reasons, are in left in peril, and then we have to go in and assist them. Um, so that day we, we set up that we set up our uh, three tent shelter. We set up these these tents that look like an army tent. We left the roofs on because we were inside and we used the but we wanted to have a perimeter to, to clarify what areas were what and then privacy when we're taking care of patients. And then we set up a triage area. A triage is where we're gonna look at the patient, see who the highest security is, who who needs our treatment first and who needs it last. Everybody's gonna get seen, but if you need it more urgently, you're going to go to the red or yellow tent. And if you're going to go to, if you're less urgent, you're going to go to the green area and you're going to wait a little longer. Um, they did a very short ribbon cutting ceremony once we opened. Um, we set up these three tents. We set up litters. We have a, it's a whole setup, pharmacy, medical supplies, uh, you name it. Everybody's in a signed role. I'm on a, I'm on a paramedic role. And when they cut that ribbon to open it, you know, they had like a little ribbon cutting ceremony, uh, which was, it was, it was honestly, it was a little bit odd because these people are standing behind, like yeah. waiting, <laughs> and then they're like, "We're open," <laughs> like opening a hospital. But they they did do a good job of doing it quickly. And in that first in the first twelve hours, we saw three hundred and sixty patients. Um, wow! And so I did a twelve hour shift, and then uh, and then we went into we had a night shift and a day shift. I was assigned to the day shift. I'd work seven a to seven p. And then the night shift would come on, and, and it was that's it, just how it goes. You just there's no days off. Uh, you're on for twelve hours, and you're off for twelve hours. What's like the worst uh, level of injury that you're equipped to deal with there? That's uh, um, in in that sense. In Houston, we had we had Houston Fire Department, and they had a task force of ambulances that were actually right next to us inside the convention center, and so we can take anything to start but we don't have surgical capabilities. We don't yeah. have admission abilities. Really the role there was is they did have many of the hospitals in Houston open, including a level one trauma facility only a few blocks away from us that was open. 
the problem is, is they are not equipped to absorb the volume of patients. And so our role is to decompress, meaning we're not going to, we're going to try to treat as many people as we can so they don't land in the doors of that ER. But we quickly, Houston Fire Department, their EMS section actually has on-duty physicians that oversee the ambulances. So we had actually an on-duty Houston physician assigned to our DMAT team. And when we would have, say, a patient would present with chest pain, we would do a 12-lead EKG on them and we determine that they're having a, a heart attack or they're having a, a, an MI, a myocardial infarction. We have no cath lab capabilities. We cannot care for that patient. Now, we can start treatment. We can give some certain drugs and start an IV call for the ambulance for a rapid transport to the cath lab um, and then have communication through the ER uh, with them. So we would we can see anything. We did see um, a couple of gunshot wounds. Um, again, with those, now one of them we were able to treat and release. So we got some fantastic physicians. Wow. But, uh, you know, the, some of them, uh, you, know, you know, that was very minor. Um, uh, the, the one was he was not critical, but we weren't capable of caring for him long term. And so – He's transported. Um, How did they get gunshot wounds? This is downtown Houston. So that, those people I, going crazy, it was, looting it and was stuff. The 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 first that first twelve uh, hour shift out of those three hundred odd patients that we had, we had twenty Cush overdoses. And Cush is a I, I you know here in Wisconsin Rapids we have obviously have a drug epidemic and we see a lot of opiate overdoses and, and other things. I had never been introduced to Kush before. Uh, apparently it's some type of synthetic uh, drug that these guys will do. And all these dealers and all these people, homeless and you name it, from downtown Houston landed in this shelter. Wow. And now there's nothing to do but get high. And, of course, now you see uh, a guy getting high. This is there's no walls. There's no privacy. And these guys pass out for a period of time. Someone would call. They actually had ambulances crews that would respond into the shelter, and then those they would bring those patients to us. Um, the ATF and the Houston Police Department got really tired of the overdoses, and they went in that next day and started uh, nailing the dealers. And we got—I mean, it went—it was like dead stop. Like the like the ETF said enough of this, and they started arresting dealers, and it was done. We did not have another Kush overdose for quite a while. Um, we did still have a few, but you know the. You know that what that what that did for us was is that is eating up our bed our a bed and time from a patient that really needs our help, um, and so the drug epidemic down there was really something. You know, of course, this is Houston, so there's gangs and other things. It would be common for me to be interviewing someone that's in for treatment, and and uh, he you know reference being you know gang activity, uh, a, a known user, very honest about it. Yeah, I haven't pushed up for a day or two now, and I need it. Um, you know, gang guys, yeah, I've been shot three times before here, here, and here. You know, these are hard, hardened people. But, you know, in that, in that shelter, the problem then became for like the Houston Police Department is you have these guys right next to a family of four that evacuated their house. You oh, know? yeah. And so you would see these families that would uh, come to us for care um, and – I remember one gentleman in particular, he had been in the shelter for about three days and uh, his blood pressure was sky high and he uh, was off of his blood pressure meds because he had left the meds at home. He hadn't come to see us for, you know, when we can help out with that. We had actually several pharmacies showed up now. We had right in the convention center, we had pharmacies working with us. Kroger and Walmart would give free, pres- three, free three-day prescriptions for people in the evacuation shelter. 
Um, but he, he, he arrived to us with his family, he brought his whole family because he did not want to leave them alone in the shelter. He's a, he's the protector. He's being so hyper vigilant about protecting them. He's now exhausted. His blood pressure sky high. So we started treating him for his blood pressure and, uh, I had started an IV on him and the doctor had prescribed some, some meds for him that we had given him and he just needs to rest. And I just told him, I said, you know, you can close your eyes here. You're safe here. Your family's right here. I said, I'll keep an eye on him. And he just passed right out. He slept for like, we let him sleep for like three hours. Wow. Um, just because he couldn't relax when he was in the shelter. He was being so overwhelmed with his protection of his family. Yeah. So, that would be, that would be hard to sleep and you when think, you're just wanting to keep your eye on everything that's going around. I, I, I couldn't say enough great things about the police officers. They worked tirelessly. They were sleeping in the shelter just like we were. They're doing 14, 16, 18-hour shifts. And when they're in there, they're identifying the criminal element that's in with the non-criminal element, and they're just really having their hands full, trying to keep everybody safe. Uh, they did a remarkable, remarkable job. And you were there for two weeks? Yeah. We, so we ran the shelter. So we opened, opened the doors, and um, uh, we're seeing a lot of a lot of patients total. Um, I was there, you know, because we've got travel time, obviously, with our staging and whatnot. That, that deployment, I think, for me was 16 days. But with the travel days in and out, I actually only worked in the shelter for 10 days. Um, and we processed something like, it was like thirty two or thirty four hundred patients in that that period of time, and then they brought in another DMAT team behind us that maintained it and slowly started shrinking the foot footprint or footprint. At that point, nine or ten days into it, the the shelter had swelled at one point. The population had swelled to thirteen thousand, um, but now at that point, they're they. They do a really good job of not making it super comfortable there. Not that you'd want to be sleeping in a room with 2,000 people. No. Um, there's no rest there. There's no – so people are really – they're working on other plans. Either they can return to their home, they can go to some family or friends in another community in another dry area, or they can maybe be set up in hotel rooms, temporary sheltering. So the, the, the population had really shrunk down to about 2,500 or 3,000 uh, people at the point that I left, and at that point they were saying, all right, people from the community, the, the medical shelter now is only for people in, or excuse me, our medical facility is only for the people in the shelter, where before we would treat anybody, whether you were in the shelter or not. You just, you presented and you got high quality free medical care. Um, That's awesome. What was it, what was it like in comparison to Puerto Rico? Well, they, they were both very unique. Our patients in Houston um, that the, we had a lot of flood water stuff. So to me, if, if someone had had a, an open wound, say on the, a foot or a leg or something that they had waded through that water with, they had just, you know, uh, got very, it got infected. And we saw a lot of like, uh, cysts and, and other things that were from that flood water. And you've got a lot of people that they've got one pair of shoes. So they've walked through that flood water and now they're wading around. Or they're, that's the only pair of shoes they've got, and they never really gets dry. They're wearing them all mm. the time. They don't have a way to dry them, and they would get this. Uh, it was almost like a surface infection on the on their skin. I actually um, did a uh, a lot of like foot bathing. We'd bring someone in, and you know, as a paramedic, you know, I would. You know, doctors aren't going to be doing that. They're busy taking care of the patients. I'd 
wash the the feet of a lot of a, a lot of patients um and then we would you know give them a topical um antibiotic to help them with that you know, there's just some neat and both both deployments had some really neat stories i'll, I'll share them. there was just there was two amazing stories i heard when i was in there as i was caring for people all the paramedics we'd we'd always visit with whoever we were taking care of you know um and and i had this young boy he had just come in we were only there for a day i think or two and uh this young boy came in with his family and i'm taking care of him and we had an ability to get clothing also there, there were the clothing donations we had the red cross was working directly with us we did have runners we'd give them like estimated sizes and then they'd come back with like bags of clothes that were donated for these people nice. so i was working on getting this young man this i think he was six um, his clothing and I, I'd always ask were you flooded what was your story how did you end up here and he said that they had had to climb on a second floor window and get onto the roof they had to swim to get onto the to the roof they got onto the roof of their house and he sat there and he said that you know, my mom was praying for a for a helicopter or a boat we were all praying for a helicopter or a boat and I'm a I'm a strong Christian so I really related to that and I you know I'm just almost you listen to these stories of heartbreak and, and disaster, and this is his home. It's flooded, and I'm just my heart's just breaking for this young man. And so he said they kept praying for the this boat or a, or a helicopter, and pretty soon a boat came. He said, and we all climbed in it. And now this was I don't know if you heard what they they call it the the Cajun Navy. They kept oh, no. calling it. It was it was I'm not sure if that is actual real thing or it was a, just a slang term thrown together for all these volunteers that showed up with boats that took their boats into these neighborhoods looking for people. So it was a guy that basically his own private boat. He's not a paid rescuer. He's there volunteering. Loaded up this young man and his whole family. Well, apparently the guy had been out. He says that he couldn't hardly steer the boat. The boat wanted to only go left. Well, that was because these boats you're operating in the city streets. They're hitting curbs. They're hitting fire hydrants. Oh my god! Garden gnomes or whatever. <laughs> you know, so these boats, if it had the air boats and the jet boats, did did better than if you know if you had a you know a regular outboard like we picture a small boat. They just got chewed up with that stuff, and uh, and so that guy then took them to a high ground where then they were told that they could come to the George Brown Convention Center and and they had just arrived. You know, and we had been there like a day or two already at that point. Um. The other story is almost unbelievable, but you know I'm a man of faith, so I believe this story. It's and I love telling it. Um, so we had this this gentleman that showed up. We had been there a couple of days. It was actually after the that boy that I interviewed, and he came to us, and his um, he was off his meds, and his blood pressure was really high, and and I was one of the guys helping take care of him, and I was asking him, you know, what happened to you? And well, he said, I'm on my roof. I'm praying that God sends me a, a helicopter or a bullet. And he said, all of a sudden, I hear something like bump into my house. So he climbs up, up and over his roof, and he looks down, and there is a boat. He says, a boat has now drifted in. Just an empty boat? An empty boat has <laughs> drifted in and bumped into his his, wow. his house. And he's like on the roof. So the water's deep. And he says, oh, thank God, there's a boat. There's a, you know, And uh, so he climbs in it, and it's still on the trailer. So it's floating with the trailer still attached. <laughs> we think this is probably you know, not come too far. So he manages somehow to get the trailer off the boat and he doesn't then take himself to the high ground. He starts running around his neighborhood and picking up people that were still stranded and in need of help. So he ends up um, going, he said, only a block or two away. 
and he this guy you know finds him on his roof the guy climbs into the boat and he says hey this is my boat (laughs) (laughs) and the guy's like what and he's like so then they compare it well the thing hadn't only drifted but you know, a few hundred yards. It, it was, it was, it was a boat from the neighborhood. Yeah. So they, then they went, they teamed up, you know, cause now you got the boat owner and you got this, this do-gooder and, uh, they teamed up, um, trying to rescue people and find people. Um, at that point, the neighborhoods had been pretty well picked through, he said, so they weren't finding a lot, but until that boat broke down and then they both ended up in the shelter. So just to me, it, every, it's just amazing stories like this of, of you know, us as, the federal government, you know, that's what I'm there representing, but it's the people helping people that the stories I love out of these things, you know, and I, I'm called to serve and I, I, you know, I just, uh, I just identify so much with that, you know, that these are, if I was in that same scenario, I picture me, you know, being there to help, you know, my neighbors too. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That's, those are amazing stories. And a lot of people did get in there and, Help with that one. Yeah, I saw a lot of Cajun, stories coming out the from Cajun there. The Cajun Navy, that was, that was something. You know, we had really limited contact. Everybody, well, what did you see? You know, all I saw was these brief glimpses of me driving in and driving out. Once I was in that shelter, we weren't allowed out of the shelter. We had a conference room that we bunked down upstairs. After the second night, I did get a cot. We all got cots. But the whole team were slipping, you know, co-ed in just this big open room. Uh, we didn't have showers for a few days. Uh, the food was, you know, they're we're eating the same food that they're eating in the shelter. Um, Puerto Rico was to get back to your original question you asked like ten minutes ago. Uh, uh, Puerto Rico was drastically different. Puerto Rico's epic size and scale, I think, was just I couldn't. I still get kind of taken back just thinking about the 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 whole the whole thing. Um, so Puerto Rico, I, we were flown to Atlanta. They were staging. I wasn't in on the initial wave, so they had had they flew some some DMAT teams in ahead of the storm, and they weathered they weathered the storm inside a hardened you know storm shelters in Puerto Rico. So once the storm passed, they would have these medical teams there. That turned into a mistake. They lost one of the team caches in the storm. Um, but you know, house it's an it's an island and it's not close to Florida. It's it's out there. Um, you know, so they had to fly in all this stuff. So I was in the second wave. So DMAT teams had been on the ground. I arrived in, in Puerto Rico about two weeks after Maria. And so the storms were gone, but the damage was there. And it was just, well, obviously everybody saw the news, the lack of power and, and everything else. So at that point they had it pretty well down. They were flying the DMAT teams. We'd fly into Atlanta. We'd go to a, a hotel in downtown Atlanta. Uh, that evening we would receive uh, what they would call like a right start training, meaning here's the environment you're going to. Here's the bugs and bitey things and snakes and stuff to avoid. Oh, here's yeah, what we're that's seeing. For, another thing to think well, of. <laughs> well, basically you're going on, you know, Houston was nice because we were inside a building, but Puerto Rico is different. You know, the, the roofs are off the majority of the buildings there. We're going on an urban camping trip um, and providing high quality medical care at the same time. Um so they uh, they prepped us for all that. Here's the disease processes that we're seeing. You know, here's what you know. A lot of stuffs presenting. Here's what's going on. Here's what the current DMAT teams are doing. What they did there is on the island is they basically put a DMAT team at every hospital throughout that uh, that island. So every community hospital had a DMAT team set up in the parking lot because none of the hospitals had power. None of them had power. 
And we were then being brought in to relieve the teams that had been in place, had set up the hospitals, had started setting up the community relations, had been, um, you know, done the real hard work of, 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 um, starting the, the see patients there. So we fly into Atlanta and we spend a night there. And the next day, then they loaded us on a charter, charter plane, um, and flew us in. The earlier teams got to fly in on military aircraft. That would have been fun, mm. but no, we were just on a <laughs> big old regular. It's like, I think it was like a British plane that they had contracted or whatever. Um, so we flew in and, and landing in uh, um, San Juan. You know, I, if everybody had heard about the, the blue FEMA tarps, like that was one of the things there is that the families could get a 20 by 30 blue tarp from FEMA. Okay. But they were like short, like 80,000 tarps for all the roofs of, oh uh, that were needed. And so, as it was, we're landing in San Juan, you look down. And we're all just just anxious to see it for ourselves, and the and as you get closer to the ground, luckily he made a lap or two or whatever to get lined up, and and so we were all getting a really good viewpoint of where we're going to land. You'd see those blue tarps like a checkerboard across the entire city, and that's a huge city. Um, and, and so we knew we were going into something. And then when we landed at the airport, the damage at the airport hangars just gone, planes tossed. And at that point, they had bulldozed all that stuff to the side so they could use as much pavement as they could. The, tra the air traffic at that airport was unbelievable. They pulled that jet in they to get it out of the way, parked it where the wingtips are just like feet from other planes. Like, like they parallel parked that baby just perfect <laughs> so they could unload us. And then that same plane is then going to depart with TMAT teams uh, that had been in staging. And so, um, so they – park it we get off we had to wait a while for a bus it's super hot it was just right away that humidity hits you it's like the hottest most humid day in wisconsin like but you know you're not going to get that's, away from it yeah there's no escape yeah, no power no, no, no air conditioning yeah that's that yeah so you had to be mentally prepared for that hydration of course the water at that point there was a good supply of those of that into the island so we had plenty of bottled water with us oh we stood under the wings of the plane for a couple of hours um while we waited for the bus and we finally made it they were doing all the staging then, the internal on the island staging at uh, at a, a huge convention center in Puerto Rico, and so they and they had the whole thing down. And I'm just a part of it, you know. I'm just a, a paramedic at that point. Um, I do have some leadership um, training and a lot of leadership training and abilities, and so I was told pretty early on that I was going to be put into leadership roles on that deployment, and not a patient care role. Um, so they transported our team uh, at that point. So I'm on. Florida one, but we have a heavy Wisconsin one um, DMAT presence with me. Um, so we've got several members from all over Wisconsin with 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 Steve Bakos again from Marshfields with me. Um, uh, we had a lot of a lot of of our great people um, with us, nurses, nurse practitioners, paramedics, all married up with the Florida team. So they they had deliver us to this convention center, and again, it's just like let's picture a huge room with cots. Find a cot that isn't occupied, and that's your bunk for the night. And then the, then the next day, then we were assigned, uh, given our assignment, who we were going to relieve. And so we were sent, our team uh, was sent to relieve uh, a Texas team that had set up at the the biggest hospital on the island, you know, Central Medical. It's in San Juan. And they had a, a tent footprint and a hospital outside in the parking lot of that hospital. So we were sent there to relieve them. And again, the role is, is hospital decompression. In how the hospitals work in Puerto Rico, this central medical uh, is given that title because all the other hospitals 
feed their patients to this patient in higher acuity patients. So they're the only level one trauma facility on the island. They did have power, but it's by their own diesel generator, which would every day or two shut down and they'd have to do repairs. It's it's spooky to be inside of a hospital that size and see people on ventilators and respirators and see oh, the generator no. shut down and they go on battery power. And for them, it's just like another day at Central Medical here in the U.S. We'd be like mass panic. Here, so kinda, people yeah. from all over the island have to go to this hospital for well, that care. Then, if, if it's a if it's a level one trauma yeah. type care, yeah, if it's that that type of care, um, you know, I'm not sure like cath labs and burn care and other things like that where they also go besides there. But our whole role there, I kind of got ahead of myself, is to do is to do um, um, hospital ER decompression. We're basically there to just assist the hospital in any way we can. We don't come in and take command of anything. We don't come in and take control of everything. We come in and say, we are here to provide medical care. You send us as many patients as you want. We did struggle. Now, I've, I've never been to Puerto Rico before. And it's U.S. territory. I'm well aware of that. I was very surprised at the lack of English on the island. And so our people who were bilingual to Spanish were very key. And we were really lucky that Central Medical was also home to a medical college, and they had shut down the medical college during after the disaster, and they had those medical college students, which are all bilingual, that were volunteering to serve as interpreters for us. Yeah. Um, my role there at Central Medical, I was uh, placed in the operations section chief role, so I didn't, uh, I wasn't putting hands on patients there. I was like overseeing the medical section of it and then reporting to a commander. So it's a regular chain of command. And in, in all of these, both the deployments or any of the deployments, this occurs, um, is where you have to have a solid chain of command that goes up and down the flow of logistics, up and down. All that information has got to be funneled up and down properly. Um, what was really interesting is when I got to Puerto Rico, I'm running into other people that I had worked with in Texas at Harvey. And I know those people had gone to Irma in Florida. I ran into a, a paramedic couple from Michigan that hadn't been home in seven weeks. Wow. They went from deployment, deployment, deployment to, deployment, to deployment. deployment. And Wisconsin once set a sizable number of people to Hurricane Irma. They did a, a sheltering mission there. So um, Central Medical, we were seeing a lot of uh, um, you know lower acuity patients. We did have some yellow-red capabilities. Uh, but we would typically work with the hospital on getting those people inside. Um, and then the other thing that we saw there was a lot of force protection. So if you're with the Department of Homeland Security, you're with FEMA, you're something like that, and you need medical care, you would come to one of the DMAT facilities rather than going to one of the local hospitals. Are you working alongside regular volunteers as well? Like if somebody like me just is like, oh, I need, I need to go help, like what would – what are other volunteer roles? Do they do you get thrown in with just regular citizen people coming? There is a typically in in disasters that's you know just you can't show up as a volunteer and end up in say like an area like we would be. There are volunteer management systems where they'll put you to work. What they have is these NGOs, non government organizations, church groups, um, uh, Team Rubicon. Well, your big ones are your Salvation Army and your American Red Cross. Um, those are two huge NGOs, so you could be volunteering for them, or they serve as a volunteer organization center. So you would actually come in, I want to volunteer. Okay, you'd go, we'd direct you over the the, um, the Red Cross. They'd say, okay, we're going to register you as a volunteer, and then we're going to assign you a job. 
what we did run into in in uh, Puerto Rico was we did have a lot, we did have a lot of citizen volunteers approaching us, but they weren't vetted. You know, you've got to be really vetted and in there. Um, I spent I got untasked from Central Medical, and I was tasked a team uh, for part of my deployment. I'd been there a few days. Um, at Central Medical, and they came saying, um, Bob, we want you to lead a strike team to the village of Fajardo on the far east coast of the island. Um, they said, you can cherry pick a nurse practitioner and a paramedic from the team you're working with, and then you're leaving in a half hour. And uh, so I talked with my commander, uh, Kerry Kushki, he's the commander of Florida One, and uh uh, you know, he's the one that brought it to me. He's a great friend, just an awesome leader. We really, uh, him and I really jive. And so he came to me with that and, and I'm like, all right, I'm always up for an adventure. Let's go to Fajardo. And so I grabbed, uh, uh, a nurse practitioner from Florida and one of his, uh, paramedics from Florida. And we went back to the convention center, met with some people from Missouri. So I was given a seven person team. I had two logistics people, uh, a doctor to serve as a chief medical officer and a pharmacist. And we were sent to the village of Fajardo. And this was probably, out of all the deployment stuff I did, this these were the most rewarding days when we went to Fajardo. We were, weren't given a lot of information, just that the, the team that was there, um, it was actually North Carolina, the same team I worked with in Houston, had been there now for, gosh, it was like 17, 18 days they had been there at that point. Um, we're going in to replace them, but they're out of DMAT teams. So they're out of medical professionals from the DMAT professional, but they had these EMAC requests. Now, I can't remember exactly what an EMAC stands for, but what an EMAC is, is that is a state-to-state -state resource request. So the territory of Puerto Rico had put in a request to the, the state of New York for medical teams, EMAC teams, and here's what we need the configuration to do. We need doctors, we need nurses. So they had sent two EMAC request teams. So these are people that had no idea that they were going to a disaster when that thing Maria hit that were asked, would you like to volunteer to go to Maria to work as a doctor and or a nurse or whatever? And they had Montefiore Hospital and Mount Sinai Hospital both volunteered. They had like, I don't know, 17 or 18 medical professionals each. And they're sending them to that medical site that we're going to work at. So it's in the hospital parking lot of Haima Fajardo Hospital. And uh, and they are without power. The hospital's open. Uh, they're running on generator power. They're really trying to, they need us to do as much hospital decompression as possible. We had these, this is kind of interesting, your question about the regular volunteers. When we arrive there and I get briefing from the, the commander, um, so we've got these EMAC people with us and, and they're like, well, who are these folks? They're not in uniform, nothing. And I'm like, they, we're, re we're replacing you. And they're very like, well, we don't know about this. They don't know about disaster medicine. They haven't had the training. Well, this is what we have, and then we're going to do our best with it. And boy, did we ever. I mean, we just knocked it out of the park while we were there. Oh, But uh, when I was getting the briefing from them, they had built a strong, that North Carolina team had built a very strong relationship with the community. And they had these, these kids that are out of school, and these kids are bilingual. I mean, you've got these kids, 17, 18-year-old kids that are volunteering to serve as interpreters and also to – we look very military-ish when we arrive. We wear all these these tan – they look just like a military uniform. They're not camouflaged, but they're tan. You know, they're like a tan BDU. Mm -hmm. We're in a very – you know, there's there's National Guard Humvee ambulances. There's Border, border Patrol was providing our security there. 
we're intimidating. And these youth are going to the community and say, there's great medical care over here. These people are really good. And really, they were our connection to the community in the village of Fajardo. Okay, because they were tentative to even even come to try to get any help from you. What was interesting is, is the same spot that they had set up that that medical facility, like three or four years earlier, the National Guard had done a radio, uh, like a like a radioactive event, like training scenario. Oh, and it looks very similar, <laughs> like in that in that part of the volume where they'd set up some tents and they were doing like it was like a hazmat incident only related to. A radiological event. Yeah. And so the villagers are like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is the last time they saw anything there was this. So those students did a, a remarkable job of connecting the abilities of these people. And again, it's the people, it's not the government, it's not the, the big machine, it's these people, their passion to serve, their abilities to serve, their skills. Um, you know, the, the, those kids led them to our door. And, and of course, I got to know the kids. Everybody did. They're just wonderful. And uh, there was one boy in particular. I, I'm chatting with him and asking about him, and he reveals he's a Boy Scout. Well, I'm a Boy Scout. My son's an Eagle Scout. I'm active, you know, in a troop here in town. Uh -huh. And so, actually, I, I said, I want you to wear your uniform one of these days. I want a picture of me in my uniform with you in your Boy Scout uniform while you're volunteering here. And we got him that and whatnot. And I've uh, I've fallen out of touch with him. I had emailed him a little bit after I came back, but I have I've fallen out of touch with him since back. But these amazing connections that are there that that medical facility there in Fajardo, um, once we got clicking, basically our seven DMAT team people, all they did is provide the support to let these these uh, these EMAC folks, the from Montefiore and Mount Sinai Hospital, allow them to do their their work. They're unbelievable. Um, medical abilities and they bought right into it it was and at the same time so on our front tents we're giving high quality medical care and in the back we're sleeping and we're camping and the <laughs> sink the sink is cold water it's outside you want to brush your teeth you got to go out there uh, we did have access to a shower that was a privilege the hospital gave us a, a room that they weren't using uh, actually, two rooms that we could go in and shower. So that's uh, nice. Yeah, that was. We didn't have that available everywhere. And most places, if they, they the the equipment caches do come with a shower, but it's going to be cold water. Um, so that was nice to be able to shower and stay clean. And and uh, you know, when you're working with those people in a disaster like that, people you've never met before, you have got to quickly bond and make a team. And and we really did. It was it was absolutely remarkable. The patients that we were seeing there in Puerto Rico. So this is weeks after the storm. Um, are people with injuries maybe from repairs. I remember one patient in particular, uh, he had fallen off a roof and he landed on a huge piece of steel and he had a huge avulsion on his, on his uh, right thigh. And uh, uh, a doc from uh, one of the hospitals from New York's like, I can stitch that up, multi-layer stitch. He literally spent like two hours suturing this guy up in our, in our tent. Um, I've got some pictures of that I'll be showing at the presentation. Oh, good. The person doesn't have patient's face in it, but uh, – not too gory. I'm not going to show you like that. But, um, but you know, and then uh, a lot of chronic stuff, and it just kind of got out that that these are people maybe that are not privileged before the storm, and now they've got free, very high quality medical care, and they can just wand, walk right on in. And so we had a lot of people with chronic stuff. All again, just like Houston, a lot of people that were off their meds. Um, a lot of heat stress related things, a lot of, you know, these people are trying to rebuild their homes. They're trying to, they're still without power. 
in that community while the entirety time I was there. Um, it, that, that was so interesting. So we ran completely on generator power and uh, we would take uh, diesel fuel um, deliveries every other day to keep that going as, as, as the leader of that site, I was responsible for all of that. Um, yeah. So I didn't really even think about some of these points you're bringing up, like everything's free. So like if I had something right before the storm that I like, I can't pay for this. I'm not going yeah. to the hospital. Like, yeah. Oh, now I'm going. Oh, yeah. This is great. Yeah. So do you, you don't take names or document anything? Like well, we document every patient. Every patient's put inside of what they call the EMR, the electronic medical records. Those are sealed. They're never billed. They're never, those aren't even, they don't become a part of the patient's permanent medical record. Now, if the hospital, that patient, we were going to send that patient up to the hospital, then we would give them a copy to, to accompany them. Um, but, you know, so no, it's it's free. But the, the thing that the, the, the real DMAT premise is, is that we're going to go in there, not ask questions, and we're going to give you the best quality medical care with whatever you present to us with. It's, it's meant for disasters, but when you get long-term like they did in Puerto Rico, you're going to have some chronic stuff that people just are going to come to you with that they had prior to, and, and they're going to get treated. Um, but it's also one of the reasons that they try to retreat as quickly as possible because you want to have mm. those communities go back onto there. They can't become reliant on having a DMAT team there. They have to go back to the, the, the normal. Um, I, uh, one of the, one of the nights that we were there, we had a patient that presented to us, um, it was a Sunday night that, uh, uh was, uh, what our doc suspected was having an aneurysm and he needed a, he needed a, he needed cardiac surgeon. He needed a thoracic surgeon. We can't provide it there. The hospital that we're here next to can't provide. Now the hospital owns a ambulance service. The ambulance service was closed on the weekends and nights. So it's a Sunday night and there's no ambulance available in Fajardo. Oh, luckily I had two national guard, uh, Humvee ambulances at my disposal. Now, the National Guardsmen are only trained at a very basic medical level. Luckily, I've got an excellent Matt Constable. Matt, if you're listening, you did a great job, buddy. Uh, he uh, got a, He's a flight paramedic from uh, Florida. And Matt's like, I'll take it. I can handle it. And so, you know, we put that patient on some meds and some drips. And he got into the back of a Humvee ambulance. And that is a, not a fun ride. Those things do not ride. And they drove the oh, one and a half hours to San Juan to deliver him to that central medical so he could have surgery. Wow. Uh, th th you know, and it's tough. I can't tell you what the good news story is on the other side. I never hear about those patients once they're gone. You know, you like to envision, well, he got his surgery and he was discharged and was good health, but I really don't know. Uh, but yeah, so that, so there's, I guess my point with that is, is that in these disasters, especially when you go into a, a, a Puerto Rico, who is, you know, in, in a, maybe an economically depressed village, there's things that existed prior to the storm that are now maybe getting fixed because of the storm. And, uh, you know, that we can't go in there and, you know, fix the medical system, uh, unfortunately. You know, there's just some flaws in it that, that need to be repaired as they become, you know, more resilient community. Yeah, going in and like how you – how, how it works where you don't ask questions and help everyone is great because yeah now that you say yeah. a bunch of people in military humvees with uniforms can might be intimidating for some <laughs> folks like, yeah i don't know if i want to go over there and get questioned yeah yeah they they bought into it pretty quick and, and when we took over that site in fajardo 
with that, they were running that 24 hours a day and uh, had a fantastic chief medical officer from uh, uh, Missouri's, excuse me, Midwest's DMAT team, Melissa Stein. And uh, her and I had a conversation. I said, do you see the need in this community for 24-hour care, especially now that the hospital's emergency room is open on generator power overnight? And we're right down in the parking lot. So if they need us, they can wake us up. So we closed that overnight. And, and so we would close it at 10 o'clock. From 10 to 8 a.m., it would be closed. And, um, you know, so you kind of titrate that back. You know, and that's what part of that process was. So, all right, so there's a new team in. Now the hours have changed. And then when I left um, and another team came in, they changed the hours again. They went to 8 p.m. So that slow retreat out of there begins, um, you know, fairly quickly after the response, the response is done. Um, so I was only there for, I believe, five or six days, and then I was sent back with everybody else. They brought in another full team, and uh, I was sent back to uh, Central Medical, and I finished my deployment there. Do you ever go back or go to areas that you've served in, maybe – Years later, or something to well, and see the change. I've only had these two disaster responses, so it's you know I've, oh, only okay. had, I've been with the team for five or six years. I've been to training things, yeah. Um, but I, that's an interesting question because I'd never thought of Houston as a destination I'd ever dream about going. But I want to go back there. I yeah. want to go back and see what it's like um, without it. We were so in both in Puerto Rico. Well, I like to go to Puerto Rico about January again. Yeah, we with my I wife. To go to Puerto my Rico wife and you know go to one of those beautiful resorts that they have there. Um, uh, you know, I think it's just kind of you want to have that connection. And I think the thing that I was amazed by in both both deployments was the people. I just you just you, the, their enthusiasm for serving each other and taking care of each other was just infectious. Um, you know, and as a, as a servant myself, you know, I want to go back and I, you don't know if, you know, what I, you know, I just remember this, 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 uh, um, young woman that I had this super sincere conversation with as I'm washing her feet. And, you know, there's a lot of symbolism to that for me, you know, being a strong Christian and washing her feet and listening to her story about not just the disaster, but she's a, she's a drug user from, you know, homeless, uh, she, she, well, I shouldn't say homeless. She did have a, a hotel that she was living in, you know, and it's just one thing after the next. And, and would you see someone like that when you went back there? Um, cause we're at that point in a disaster. Everybody's, I guess, stature in the community goes away and we're all at the same level. You know, we're all at the same level. And I, I think that, that, that I'd like to go back and see what it's like under normal circumstances. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's great how that happens. And they, they were just amazing to us. Um, the food, the food, you know, when we got there, they were trying to serve us a lot of cafeteria food and we would have to be in at seven. They weren't serving breakfast until like seven thirty, So they would have leftover supper out for us. And the, you know, the meals there were, they were doing the best they could. They were, they were good. They were edible. We did eat a lot of memories. But then when a, uh, a local oncologist found out, this is in Houston I'm referring to, that we were uh, uh, maybe not getting these great meals or whatever. Every day she was finding someone to sponsor a meal for the DMAT team, like twice a day. They had these breakfast burritos that she would bring in that were just phenomenal. Like you're like eyeing up the back door. When's she going to walk <laughs> in with these things, you know? That's awesome. And, you know, and so that was her way of showing support for what we were doing for the community. Yeah, to be so aware and wanting to yeah. help that you can see like, oh, their food, they have food, but it's yeah. it could be better and I could help and yeah. make it better. Yeah, and then well, we had our little setup there at, at in Houston. 
where we were at, they had also had the law enforcement post was there and the Houston Fire Department had a task force of ambulances there. So there was a big footprint of, of uh, responders, serve, people who were serving there. And when the word got out of that, oh, and then we had a guy that had, uh, you know, I love barbecue, you know, so in Texas, I was happy I got to have them. They yeah. had a guy that rolled in with this trailer barbecue unit, set it up right outside the doors of where we were. And then he would let us know it was ready, and he'd give us free barbecue. He'd have us come out oh, for a free meal of barbecue. Sounds delicious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the bell would ring, and we would run. And if you were in patient care, I'm sorry. I'm going to eat the barbecue. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, you know the guys that were in there, we'd always try to save them a plate. But, um, you know, the, there was another one, too. The Southern Baptists um, found out that they, they showed him that how they apparently respond is by doing mass meals. When they showed up and they found out that we weren't getting breakfast till 7.30, but we were looking for breakfast at 5.30, they came in and started setting up. And the biggest spreads of eggs and grits and bacon and, oh, my gosh, they were wonderful. Just great people. What's your best advice for somebody that's still back in Wisconsin or in Wisconsin Rapids? Like, what is the best thing? to do for help? I mean, if you're available, is it to volunteer or is it to donate to a certain organization? There, or? There's a lot of ways that you can help. There's a lot of, like, if you're interested in responding, the American Red Cross and the Salvation Army are two, and there's and Team Rubicon, there's several non-government organizations that are probably better at deploying people to disasters than the federal government because they get the red tape out of the way. And they, and they just respond. Those are really, those are organizations on all the deployments I've seen and even disaster planning I've done and disaster exercise. Um, I've seen them working. They're remarkable. The one thing I would say, you know, if, if you, if you're not going to go as a responder and you're looking for a spot to donate your money, you know, that was a big one. I was, I want to send some money. Well, obviously yeah, that can be a confusing process it, when it, a disaster hits and then yep. a thousand people have a different fund me things up. Exactly. I would steer you towards the large established, um, non-government organizations. Well, now JJ Watts stood that one up and obviously that guy's going to raise a pile of money and it's going to go to the right places. Mm -hmm. And everybody, well, I want to make sure that my dollar, that dollar I'm going to donate goes to the people in Houston. If I donate to the Salvation Army or to the uh, American Red Cross, um, I don't want that to end up, you know, in New York City on, a, you know, a food truck there or something like that. I would say you're donating to an organization that is going to use that money to they're, they're doing great work in response. I would say get out of the way of defining how you want it spent. Um, you know, you can make a big difference with those dollars. The one thing that I, 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 I wish I'll probably, I'll put a picture up in that presentation I do. They had the clothing donations and these semis of clothing donations that turns into a massive problem in these disasters. Now, Puerto Rico, not so much because they'd have to put it on a plane or a barge and fly it there. But Houston, you know, there are a lot of communities would have these semis they loaded up, donate stuff for the victims of Harvey. And they just have a, you know, and they'd roll that into the backside of the convention center and they had Salvation Army get volunteers going through it. And I kid you not, that pile, they just threw all the clothing in a pile. If it came off a truck, it went into a pile. That pile was easily 30 feet tall and at least 50 or 60 feet wide. And all these volunteers are having to piece, all right, what size is it? Men's, women's, 
size it, sort it, and then they were putting that out for the people. But they had more clothing they would ever use. I'm sure a lot of it went to the landfill. That donation turned into a problem for them. You know, um, so I would say stick with these big established non-government organizations. They've got good relationships with the with the federal response. They work as partners in and see what they're asking for. And that's where you where you volunteer. If you want to go, if you want to be deployed, um, if you are a doctor or a nurse or a paramedic and you're listening to this podcast, um, go to phe.gov. Uh, that's paulhenryedward.gov. Um, there's going to be a massive hiring uh, for the DMAT teams across the country right now uh, in the very near future. Um, our team right now, we sit probably at like 30 to 35 people on our team. Our roster is going to move to 85 people, and we're really short on upper-end people, so we're really short on docs, especially people with like an emergency room or family practice um, you know, background, but we put just about anybody with, uh, you know, that level of care will put you to work. So that's another area you can, I get that asked that frequently. And if, if you can't find that, uh, reach out to me on my email. My email is my last name, Bartek, B-A-R-T-E-C-K, 113 at gmail.com. And then I'll try to steer you in the right position. I'll steer you towards the people who can give you answers. So there's a lot of ways you can give and serve. Great. Uh, thanks for sharing these stories with us. All right. Well, before I go, Colin, I'm going to present you. This is one of our team coins. And wow. um, so that uh, most of the DMAT teams will have coins like that. They're kind of fun to trade and have. And there's some. Yeah, this sim- thing's amazing. Some sim- symbolism to them. So the uh, front side is our team logo and our team motto around the outside. Our team motto. Good medicine in bad places. Yep. And then the backside is the Damn National man. Disaster Medical System um, logo on there. This is awesome. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We hope you use this information to strike up a local conversation. We believe in the power of community and story here at the library, and we have plenty of stories in book, ebook, CD, DVD, and magazine form. Check us out at macmillanlibrary.org to see upcoming events, including concerts, speakers, movies, and more. We also have free online classes through Gale Courses, as well as a host of databases for your research needs. If you can't find what you're looking for, stop in at the Information Desk. The Macmillan Conversation Maker podcast can be found at macmillanlibrary.org backslash podcast. 